You're listening to the Spiro Avenue Show. If you like what you hear, please follow us on Apple Podcasts. You can also watch our full shows and clips and highlights on Facebook and YouTube. Thank you for watching, and I hope you enjoy. We are back on Spiro Avenue, and I have to tell you, I love it. I love you all. It has been a very supportive audience since we got this thing back going a couple months ago. And because I love you so much, and I hold you all in, in such a, a deep, dear place in my heart, I am proud to bring you tonight a friend of mine and the best journalist in the state of Michigan, as awarded by me, the only vote that matters in this studio, Chad Live and Good, Crane's Detroit Business, the top journalist in the state of Michigan. I challenge you to provide a name that can challenge them. You won't be able to. Chad Live and Good across from me in studio on Spiro Avenue. How are you, Chad? I'm good. I'm, you know, I'm uh, just surviving the pandemic every day. You're surviving the pandemic, and the pandemic will be a key topic today, probably the key topic in particular with how our governor here in the state of Michigan has handled it for better or for worse. I don't want to cast aspersions or, or cast you in a role. But let's just get any biases that are out there, you know, right at the beginning that you may have, you know, so no one can say, oh, this is a right wing hatchet job. I followed you for a long time. Is it fair to say that you are left leaning? Do you, is that is that OK for me to say up front? You, uh, there are some people that conclude that. OK, so but you're not a right wing hatchet, man. You're not you don't you're not working for the GOP. So any well, I'm criticism, certainly not working for the GOP. Todd Corser can attest to that for those of you that know that backstory. So. Chad, uh, in my opinion, is a a left-leaning guy, not a far lefty, but a left-leaning guy. So that's the frame that I want to put this in. I think that your coverage on Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, has been exemplary. I think it's been on the ball uh, from the beginning, particularly the last few weeks. You've had a few pieces. I want to start from a few weeks back, right at the end of August, August 31st. You write an article focusing on the small businesses in Detroit, in Metro Detroit, particularly bowling alleys, gyms, ice rinks, et cetera, that are on the verge of collapse. Uh, your article in Cranes outlined a number of issues with Gretchen Whitmer's approach to how these businesses have been handled. She, for example, vetoed legislation, and you discuss this in the article, vetoed leg uh, legislation that would have given a tax extension to these small businesses just so they could keep their doors open and their bills down a little longer. Just in general, from that article, from your experience, you've interviewed business owners. There was a Boeing Alley owner that you discussed in great detail in that article. In general, your experience from covering this, how has Gretchen Whitmer handled the small businesses and businesses in general throughout this process? Well, from the start, um, the governor took this approach that we had to basically shut down all really what it, what was deemed non-essential business activity that really isn't necessary for like the continuation of human life, which at the time that made a lot of sense. I mean, this virus was real and it still is real. It was raging. It was taking, it was making a lot of people sick really fast. Um, you know, as anybody in Metro Detroit understands, a, a lot of our hospitals were very much overrun. Beaumont, Royal Oak, uh, D Detroit Medical Center, um, and Detroit Receiving Hospital in D at the DMC, the Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, uh, all were at capacity, and and we really did see a surge 
And it was, you know, it was taking up a lot of our of our, our resources, our, you know, burning through PPE. We had hospitals that were down to two or three days worth. Uh, Beaumont Royal Oak was just like hanging on the edge. I think U of M and Arbor as well for for many weeks there. Um, so the the whole idea initially was we got to shut this down. We got to stop this curve from from accelerating up. And and over time that worked. I mean, I've written that that the governor was successful on this. I I convinced that the governor saved lives along the way. Um, then we got into this into this kind of long um, drawn out uh, procedure for trying to reopen the economy, and the governor took this kind of you know she used this sort of dial uh, idea that we're we're turning the dial we're not flipping a switch, and as they they've turned this dial we started the first week in in May they opened up the construction industry the real estate industry then they let manufacturing auto plants restarted in mid May, uh, and then by Memorial Day she was opening up um, restaurants and bars up north. And then by by the next week in June, it was restaurants and bars downstate. I mean, it was kind of one after another. We kind of, and then we started, then we started basically sort of testing really was one big science experiment to sort of see how it worked. Um, and we found out pretty quickly um, for your East Lansing listeners that Harper's was not a good place to be in mid-June. Um, yeah, we're in the hard way. Harper's isn't a good place to be at any time of year in any uh, pandemic or not scenario, but that's another story. Exactly. Well, and so, um, so the governor pulled back. And she said, "Okay, you know, bar service is is uh, prohibited indoors if you make more than seventy percent of your sales uh, from alcohol." Um, and so bars were forced to, to build outdoor, um, you know, um, patios and such, and get creative with their parking lots. And everybody has kind of just gotten along all summer long. Well, they they did all this. They accommodated all these other businesses. And then they left a bunch of businesses kind of on the sideline over here. The one, the couple of the big ones were the casinos in Detroit um, that had a plan at the beginning of June that they were going to go back to 15% occupancy, which is kind of like what, what normal daily traffic looks like at Greek town casino, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, but um, I mean, except for with the exception of like, like big fight nights and 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 other you know big events or or when they have concerts those places aren't packed to the gills ever um but they you know they so they first so they let the casinos reopen the beginning of august and then it was like okay if you're like casinos uh, if that's an okay behavior to go and just pull a slot machine um wh- why why can't you go pick up a bowling ball um and i'll be honest um I'm not too hot about bowling uh, in the pandemic. Um, I, I I like bowling. I, I'm not like a you know regular bowler, but um, uh, just to back up a little backstory. On Sunday, March eighth, I went uh, bowling with my whole family uh, at Belmark Lanes in Ann Arbor uh, for my brother's birthday party. Uh, we we all met up there, and after that, I went to the Diag at U of M with 10,000 of Bernie Sanders' best friends um, to cover a Sanders rally um, on the on two days before the primary. Um, so I, I, I look back at that and think, holy cow, I was really exposed, um, I mean, potentially to the virus in multiple settings. The next day, um, I was I was with the governor uh, at, at she was at the Livonia Chamber of Commerce. 
Um, and uh, she was trying to promote uh, um, elbow bumps and, and such. Um, but that night I went to a rally with a Joe Biden rally, 1,500 people at Detroit Renaissance High School uh, in the gymnasium. Now they handed everybody a big you know, pile of, uh, of, uh, of hand sanitizer on the way in. But still, like I, I look back and I'm like, oh man, between the bowling alley and the and and the and the Bernie rally and and the and the and the Biden rally, there's a lot of places you could, could get exposed. I don't have any interest in going to a political rally personally or even professionally at this point, and I don't have any interest in going bowling, but. I do have an interest in understanding the decision making that goes on in state government that is basically bankrupting a bunch of businesses in Michigan right now by keeping them close uh, indefinitely. And they, they've they've since since I wrote about the bowling alley thing, the governor did allow organized sports. Um, so that that has has created a loophole for bowling alleys to to operate for leagues only. Um, so. Apparently, it's okay if a bunch of 50-year-old men and 60-year-old men get together and bowl on Tuesday night, but it's not okay for um, a bunch of 16-year-old kids, teenagers, to go uh, laser bowling or whatever they call it uh, on, on Saturday night uh, at, at Belmark Lanes in, in Ann Arbor or wherever. Um, and so that's part of what my job at Cranes is to kind of like fly spec some of this stuff try to understand, okay, what is the reasoning uh, here? Um, and as we've gone along further and further, there's been just a lot of head-scratching um, amendments to these executive orders that you can't hardly make sense of. Um, that you could, that, and that, that the governor's office uh, has to then turn around and explain in their frequently asked questions. Um, they, they don't, the governor herself does not answer very many questions about these EEOs anymore. Um, and her staff is never made really available to do so. So they, they have to put out these, these, these FAQs that have sort of, they're not really law, but they're being sort of treated like, well, if you don't understand, this is what we really mean, um, is that, yeah, you can uh, have an event with 250 people up north, but you can't have a wedding with 250 people. I mean, that's, that's there's just all the kinds of different things that you, uh, even a person plain reading the, the, the executive orders could not decipher. Um, and I've been just following this because I also – Talk to a lot of people, both in the business industry that that are trying to try, trying to live under the rules, uh, and many of I think a lot of small businesses that uh, you know have adapted this. A lot of businesses in general, they've adapted this, knowing that yeah, they take they take the virus really seriously, um, and they 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 also want to be able to work, to to make a living, <laughs> and, yeah, and God forbid. And that's that's what they're that's what they're uh, and so they're willing to jump over. I mean, these these bowling alleys will just do anything the governor tells them to at this point uh, in order to basically make money to pay their taxes, pay their insurance, pay their just fixed costs. I mean, it's not I mean, it's not so simple as just you just shut down and you don't have any expenses because you had to lay all your workers off. But yeah, you still have the property tax bill that came due came due in July and you still have insurance and you still have other overhead costs that have nothing to do with just operating the business day to day. And um, so, um, I, you know, I'm not. I'm not trying to take the side here of, of, of the bowling alley or the movie theater, but I am trying to understand is how does that business get back to work? Uh, and if not, well, maybe state government ought to be just buying, pay, paying these businesses to not 
um, uh, operate in in the good of public health. And I've suggested that as well. That we, if we're just not if we're not going to let them reopen, we ought to just cut them a check for their for their fixed expenses of of, of leases, rent, mortgage, um, utilities. I mean, it sounds very Bernie Sanders, but um, uh, it's actually you know really a reasonable idea at this point. You're six months in, and you're going to basically ruin a small number of people's lives if you continue to keep them uh, closed indefinitely without any way to really make money. And there's there's so much to unpack there. I, I think the the biggest thing, well, let's start here. You talked about these businesses being willing to jump through a lot of hoops. They'll do anything. I don't know if you are familiar uh, with Paul Glantz and Imagine Theaters. He's the, the owner and, and he just stepped down from CEO. Paul Glantz, Imagine Theaters. Check them out. They're all over Michigan. They're the best. He wanted to host a Juneteenth festival at Imagine. Socially distanced, you know, the hand sanitizers, masks, the whole thing. He went to the state and said, I will follow any guidelines you guys want me to do. I just want to hold this festival. And it was going to be, I think it was all African-American directors or, or leads or there was some, you know, theme there. So it was a, a celebration festival. He wasn't even going to charge people. He was going to just have it be like an open, he had RSVP because there was a, a limit. But he was, he said, I'll do anything. I just want to get this going. I want to do it for the community. And he got a letter threatening him, which he published, threatening him with criminal charges if he proceeded with this. And, and it just speaks to, is the state pushing too hard on a business that this, in this case, he wasn't even trying to make money on this, from my understanding. He's just saying, I'm trying to do something for the community and the government's role, I guess, is to come in and tell him, not only can't you or you'll be fined, but we could potentially arrest you. Like they're going to show up and, and put the cuffs, the silver bracelets on Paul Glantz, who's like Mr. Rogers, if you don't know Paul Glantz. And he's like probably the nicest guy in the state of Michigan. So that's the sort of tone that I think a lot of people take an issue with where when small business owners have pushed back on some of these things publicly and in letters and have appealed to the governor and her staff for some guidance on these things, she came out, and I'm paraphrasing, but and maybe you can correct me. Did she not come out and say that she's not going to be bullied by these business owners? That she's going to do what she's going to do? Basically, is that yeah? That I mean, close to she the got court? asked a direct question. Well, when are you going to allow? Uh, it was a, one week. She was asked in August, when are you going to allow? bowling alleys, movie theaters, ice rinks to reopen. Right. She said, you know, next week I'm going to have an update on that. So then the next week at the next press conference, she got asked that because, uh, you know, the press corps in Lansing is really, really smart and sharp. And they just, when when a question goes unanswered, someone remembers and then asks it the next week. And there's very limited opportunity to get questions to the governor anymore. Uh, and they're in a very tight format. We're not even in the room with her anymore. Why do you think she does that? I want to interject on that. Why do you think it's we've had the limited access? I I couldn't really speculate about that at this point. Um, I, I mean, it has – well, look, she has said we're, they're not allowing reporters in the room because of her, her own executive order saying that, that there are, it has to be fewer than 10 people at a gathering indoors. What about Zoom? I mean, the Detroit Tigers have 17 reporters. Uh, well, we, we do. They do. They do let people, reporters on Zoom. They limit that as well, like to about 10 or 12 reporters on Zoom to then ask the question via Zoom, even though she's staying in, standing in an empty auditorium, okay. um, press auditorium. So 
there is that's basically the the state of access because of the ten person limit. They, they don't think they can have ten people in the auditorium, the press auditorium, which is basically like a thirty seat uh, press press auditorium or a little auditorium. But um, so they're trying to you know they're trying to adhere to their own rules, which which makes sense. Um, but um, but you know we we've been kind of back and forth early on in, in the in the pandemic. They were only letting two reporters in. It was reporters that the governor's office picked uh, from from the from the press pool, and and then they would be allowed to go in and basically served as as pool reporters and ask questions and such. And that was that worked all right. I mean, uh, but but then when uh, she ended the stay at home order, they started opening up press events to. Uh, to uh, a dozen reporters, basically, it was first come, first serve, and I went to two of them in in Lansing. I mean, but um, um, but to get back to the to the, uh, the where we are right now with the virus, um, the, the movie theater, um, and I've I've pointed this out now in two columns, and I've heard that the governor's office is kind of perturbed by this, um, which is okay because they have an they need to answer this question: What is the difference between a movie theater and a college lecture hall? Physically, I mean, they're usually built by the same architect. Well, they're 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 constructed the same thing. I mean, they are a um, you know a stadium a, a stadium seating, seating yep. style room um, that can hold somewhere between you know seventy to one hundred and fifty people or something along that lines. Uh, they're configured the same way, um, and I think when when the movie theaters reopen, I mean, I'm pretty certain we're gonna everyone's got to wear a mask in the movie theater. I don't think that's that's probably too much to ask. Um, and there's going to be, you know, probably socially distanced seats are going to be cordoned off. So you can only sit in certain seats and that that'll be that'll be the norm for until we until we uh, get a vaccine, basically, like like all other aspects of our lives. Um, but we're not allowing that for some reason. We're still not allowing that even to take place or even giving them a shot at actually reopening. And, and to be honest, when Imagine and company reopen. It's not guaranteed that they're going to survive. Um, um, I mean, one, the big, the big movie, uh, you know, production companies are holding off releases of all kinds of big movies uh, until like twenty twenty, end of twenty twenty one, or tw- even twenty twenty two. And I'm not a huge movie buff, so I can't keep, I couldn't name them off here. But, but, um, but, or, um, and then, or they're they're just, you know, they're they're not gonna necessarily get the same demand people are going to be fearful of going back to the movie theater that's just going to say you know that's that's something i don't want to do or take that risk and so so it's not even like i said it's not even guaranteed that the movie theaters are going to actually survive once they get reopened um but they're definitely not going to survive just basically dying on the vine under government uh you know dictate to stay Stay closed. It reminds me, it's like the the Irish guy in Titanic and third class who's like behind the gate while the ship is sinking. And it's like, even if they let him through, he's probably going to die. But he's just shaking the gate and saying, like, come on, give us a chance. Like, let us out so we can have a chance. Let these businesses open just so they can have a chance would be the argument. I, I think what you took issue with in that August 31st article that I found uh, resonated with me anyway, was there's a lack of communication and a lack of leadership there that, okay, you're doing this. Explain why. Why are you doing this? I think the communication has been poor in a number of ways. The biggest thing, and again, you you have talked about this quite a few times so far in this summer, the lack of defining of the criteria for reopening and reopening to this phase, that phase. 
what is the percentage of COVID infections in the area that the movie theaters can then, you know, flip on? Like, when can they open? There's no even goalposts to move. We don't have goalposts. Everything it just seems to be kind of legislated by fiat. And without that direction, you're asking a lot of people. You're saying you're going to lose your livelihood. A lot of businesses, you, we're talking about movie theaters. We don't know if they might survive. We don't have to talk about the future for industries that have gone under, the companies that have gone under, mom and pop shops that have gone under. The damage has been done in that regard. Do you think that they've met their duty that if they're going to force this on people, whether it's the right thing or not, we don't even have to dispute that. But do you think that they've met their duty to communicate the reasons why properly and the data that they need to see pop up on the chart before they release the the restraints on these companies? Not really. I haven't. I mean, there's been a whole host of different examples. Uh, one was this summer when <laughs> the governor pulled back on on um, region six and eight, and the regions region six is basically the 17 counties of the of the northern lower peninsula. Basically, stretches from Traverse City over to Alpena, and it's a whole kind of vast, um, you know, north of the knuckles, basically. Uh, and just yeah. for anybody using their hand at home, and um, but but. And then Region 8 is the Upper Peninsula. Well, when they decided to pull back on bars in those regions, which came out of nowhere at the end of July, um, there was there was really no data or science or evidence presented at all that said, hey, th- you know, this is this is dangerous. Other than they just wanted to, ba- they seemed to just want to basically make say, put this apply the same rules they had going downstate to the rest of the state. They, I mean, I just I I could not get an answer out of anybody of. Okay, what is this little bar? It is a little bar in Gold City on US two in the southern lower peninsula, about about forty miles from the bridge. Uh, I've I've happened to have been there once um, uh, when I went uh, on a family camping trip nearby and uh, stopped in because they had a sign outside that said they were they sold fresh eggs in a bar. Um, and um, and this little biker bar there. Um, what what is the threat there? versus is it is it a you know a nightclub in Traverse City that actually caused it um and how do you apply the same uh rules and 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 why do you apply the same punishment to that little bar uh nestled out in the woods uh in the upper peninsula versus something in the more populous area and that's that's one of the, uh, the pitfalls of this regional these regions that they develop they, they let big business people develop by the way um is um is they're not necessarily attached to uh reality of where the actual virus is right now um and so the the in the uh, the August 31st article or whatever in the August that column I I featured this Boeing uh, alley operator in Ludington where the the virus is still a very distant thing in Mason County um and uh, the 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 threat at the bowling alley um, seems a lot less than the, the bowling alley in Ann Arbor that I went to. That you know may not be a, a good a good place to go, but there hasn't been any kind of nuance to this. It's it's been an across the board. Everybody gets hit by this rule. And Ludington and Mason County got drawn into the into the into the region with Grand Rapids. There's certainly been a, a lot of problems with COVID nineteen in and in, in Kent County and Grand Rapids. Um, but when you get to out to Nuego County and Mason County, um, it's it's not that prevalent uh, or hasn't shown up at least so. 
in testing to date, and yet we're prescribing the same exact medicine uh, for trying to 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 mitigate the spread uh, in these communities that um, that uh, have gone through the summer, who are there are tourism meccas, um, and they've gone through the summer and not had a whole lot of problems, not had a whole lot of hospitalizations to really account for. Um, I mean, right now there's like one person hospitalized in the entire Upper Peninsula for, for coronavirus. And there's basically one person hospitalized all summer long um, uh, in the Upper Peninsula for coronavirus at any given day of the of the week. Um, and uh, not to mitigate or, or minimize uh, that one person's um, ailment and sickness, but is that enough to, you know, um, you know ne- make this necessary to apply all these kind of broad rules across the board? I think that's questionable at this point. Questionable at best. And people like to say, oh, you can't bring up car crashes because car crashes aren't contagious, which is a straw man defense of that statement. The bottom line is, in life, you always make risk assessments, driving to work, uh, whatever you do, uh, you know, I can take a risk eating in a a cheap sushi place. I mean, everything has some level of risk, most of which would be just getting in the car and driving every day. You have a much higher chance of dying uh, in the UP from driving than you do from COVID-19. I think there's a risk assessment that you have to make and every, it's everyone's right to make. I will say in Gretchen Whitmer's defense, I would not want to be Gretchen Whitmer or anyone on her staff during this period because I think you have such a divided state just in the same way the country is divided. And if she took a more Ron DeSantis in Florida approach where we're just going to be really hands off and, you know, let it kind of, I hate to say the term burn through, but that's basically what Florida's approach was yep. for a time. You know, you're going to piss off the other half of the state. I You, you mentioned the bowling alley owner. Well, you're also going to have, you probably would have more people die. I mean, that that's. Well, probably. If, if, yeah, if, I think if she it. handled it like DeSantis did, um, just because it was already very much spreading around our communities particularly in Southeast Michigan, in late February. We hadn't detected it yet because the testing was horrible. Um, but if we had testing capability like we had now, we would have found it pretty quickly and maybe we would have been able to stop it. Um, you know, and maybe some of these, you know, um, uh, rules and orders to try to basically mitigate human activity. That's really what it comes down to is this human uh, activity, touch and, and, and transmission um, that, you know, but we didn't have that. We were, we weren't prepared as a, as a state or a country. Um, uh, and it took a long time really to kind of get that testing capability up. But now we have that testing capability and it's there and, and we're testing three times as many people as we were at the, at the beginning, at the mid, middle of April, when we we're still registering 125 to 150 people a day dying. Um, and now we are, you know, uh, under eight a day average on a seven day average. Um, and our caseload is, even though the caseload is, is in the 650 to 750 a, a day, um, average, um, we, it's not affecting people the same way it was back in, in April. I mean, there's yesterday, the Ingham County, um, health officer said there's 1250 active cases in, uh, um, um, linked to Michigan state university. Um, there's not one person in the hospital. Uh, in Ingham County right now, um, according to the health officer, uh, as a result of coronavirus. So it's 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 not the variables of, of this virus have changed. 
Um, and that was part of my column this week is those have changed with the policies and how uh, how we're trying to, to navigate it and, and manage it. They have not really changed. I think in, in, you know, you had a quote in the article too, which I'll paraphrase from Gretchen Whitmer, where I think she seems to be admitting that, look, I bit off more than I can chew. It's impossible to manage all these counties, all these industries, what's safe, what's not. We barely know what we're doing with the virus yet, let alone how it's going to affect Ingham County versus Wayne County versus Kent County. It's impossible to do. And I think you you can't rule with an iron fist with these executive orders, like you said, in this big blanket when it's one state, but it's about 375 different sets of variables in different communities and different implications. I Do you sense that even she is really starting to get that the government can't do what they've been doing, that they have to back off? Yeah, I mean, she's she has said as much that, that well, one, she has said that the state of emergency is only going to last a matter of months still a more i mean didn't say how many months but but um when you hear her talk about it it sounds like three or four you know just kind of ballpark not not that's that sort of speculation on my end again because we haven't been able to pin her down on it but um but she you know she did make this comment last week that kind of that that's that said she was which one she was praising the the efforts of Ottawa County uh, that issued a stay at home order to Grand Valley State University students and the Ingham County uh, Health Department that issued very targeted quarantine orders to some 39, 40 different uh, uh, houses in East Lansing, uh, 23 or four um, sorority and, and frat houses in particular um, that had had uh, students who tested positive and were uh, were known for having some parties and some outbreaks. Um, and she was praising that and said, you know, based on the state of this virus, we can't have a one size fits all approach. And I thought that was really kind of telling that, you know, she has really managed with a and I said micromanaged, which took a lot of her of her uh, uh, close followers off. But there ha- this has been micromanaged. Um, and in, in many ways, that's been necessary, at, at least at the outset, um, uh, the, uh, that um, that it was necessary to to try to get a handle on this thing. Um, as time has gone on, I'm I'm not sure that the micromanagement approach and that heavy hand is is um, justified. I just haven't seen really a lot of evidence that says yes, we have to really limit these weddings from happening. But uh, it, what what happened last week was um, in one of her amended executive orders, and based on the FAQs, um, it, the government is now telling people. It's okay for 250 unrelated people to have a business meeting at the Grand Traverse uh, Resort, but 25 people uh, unrelated can't have a can't go to a wedding um, at the Grand Traverse Resort. That there's still a limit of 10 people. Okay, what is the difference? I've been to a lot of business conferences. People mix it up there just like they do mix it up at a wedding. Uh, I mean, and uh, do they dance as much? Eh, maybe not, but but they they certainly. Um, are congregating close to each other, um, in in much the same way, and and so again, what is the difference, um, uh, between these two types of activities, um, and and so that's where I, I I said that the governor has been micromanaging this thing, but you know when she goes and says you know 
can't have one size fits all approach. It seemed like a kind of an admission that, you know, the beginning of the end of that of that approach is kind of here. It's interesting because you made the great point just now about, again, the inconsistent we, inconsistency we see again and again where 250 people here is OK in this context, 25 people in this other context somehow is safe. I think that's a tough road to hoe when your entire defense of everything you've done, you've ruled with an iron fist, you've been tough, you've been strict, you've been considered one of the three or four strictest, most uh, intense lockdown governors in the union. I think it's tough to hide behind the science, the science, the science, when this is how you're operating, because that's been the go-to. The go-to defense for Gretchen Whitmer and her team has been, we're following the science. And that has been their sort of deferred point where anytime there's any type of challenge, we're following the science. How is the science consistent with your example of 250 people in a business meeting versus 25 people at a, at a wedding? How is the science consistent with this protest in Lansing where the, the people are storming the Capitol armed? Didn't support it. I thought it was a little wacky. Supported the right to do it. Thought it was a crazy cause. They come out up in arms. Gretchen Whitmer and her staff were, were appalled that these people, half of them aren't wearing masks. And how could they do this? And these people are Operation Gridlock and how terrible it was. And then like seven days later, seven, eight days later, Gretchen Whitmer's walking hand in hand down the street in a protest of her own. I'm not arguing the merits of one protest or the other. COVID doesn't care about the merits of either protest. So if you're going to say, I'm going by the science, okay, explain the 250 verse 25 example that you talked about. Explain the college lecture hall versus the movie theater. Explain uh, why no one can get on a boat except you and your husband. Sorry, cheap shot, right, Chad? But I mean, the point is there's an inconsistency there that makes no sense. And look, if you are going to by force, not by physical force, but by force of the leverage of the power of the government, take something from somebody, remove their right to a livelihood, you owe them a really good explanation why. And this goes up and down. It can be even on the most local level. I live in a neighborhood. We have a little community association. We have dues every year. Once in a while, Every other year or so, we get a little letter in our mailbox. Hey, guys, dues are up $280 this year. Not negotiable. We have to pay it because we have this issue, you know, all the lights burned out or the trash company that we worked with is out of business, which actually did happen. This one's more expensive. It's the best we could do. I don't have an option. I have to pay for it. But at least they outlined, hey, here's the copy of the termination of the contract from the previous disposal company. Here's the six bids that we had. See that we took the low bid. This company has good reviews, whatever. Okay, I, I didn't get a vote in this. I had to pay the two hundred and eighty-five extra dollars a year, whatever it was. But you explained why. But if you're you're shutting down these businesses and forcing them out, and you have no explanation for this two hundred and fifty versus twenty-five, or why this protest is okay and this one isn't, at the end of the day, if you're going to do that to people, you better be available. You better not get pushy and defensive with questions, saying that they're bullying you for asking what I think are totally fair questions. I think. My biggest issue is the inconsistency and the defensiveness more so than it is even the shutdowns themselves, because I have been defensive of her, especially in those early months. And I had friends typically on the right that were clobbering me for, for defending her, saying, I think we were taking the prudent approach and shutting things down. But at the end of the day, I, I don't think she can stand by how she's done the last couple of months. I think it has been a failing on her part. And the Boeing Alley owner, I, I'm going to pull this quote directly from your article. This is what he said. August 31st, I didn't go out of business because I'm a crummy business owner. 
I didn't go out of business because I yelled and screamed at my customers and forced them to leave. I've been shut down by one person. Only one person shut me down, and I'll lose my whole business if I can't get open soon. You've talked to a lot of business owners. There is contempt, it seems, for the governor at this point. But you look at the polling. The Detroit News had a poll on September 9th, Mm -hmm. 59% COVID approval. Anecdotally, my experience, I'm a nursing home administrator. These families have been particularly affected. I think Gretchen Whitmer probably has about a 9% approval rating with, with these families. Know a lot of business owners, Paul Glantz being one of them. I don't know where this 59% is coming from. In your experience, what is sort of the mood of the people you've talked to? You write for Detroit, you know, Crane's Detroit business. You're the Wall Street Journal of Detroit. What are, what are business owners telling you about this? Um, there's a, there's a, it just depends on what type of business owner you, you talk to. If you talk to um, an executive at a major corporation, they're, they're just fine and happy with, with the governor. And that was, I mean, her reopening plan was, was crafted by um, sort of, uh, well, the, the, the chair, and well, definitely the chairman of the of business leaders from Michigan, Jerry Anderson, the, the executive uh, chairman of uh, DTE Energy. Um, you had um, uh, General Motors, uh, Herman Miller, uh, Lear Corp. Uh, the heads of big hospitals, uh, such as you know, um, uh, Bo- Beaumont and and uh, and um, D- uh, Henry Ford, uh, Nancy Schlichting, the former CEO of Henry Ford Health System. You had the heads of, of major universities who also happen to be uh, um, uh, experts in infectious diseases. Uh, Roy Wilson at Wayne State, Mark Schlissel at U of M, uh, Stanley uh, uh, Samuel Stanley. Uh, at, at MSU, uh, they all advised the governor on this reopening plan. And um, by my estimations, pretty much all of their businesses got reopened pretty quickly uh, if they weren't already because the hospitals obviously never shut down. But um, but the automakers got what they wanted. They got they got to restart their plants pretty soon, pretty quickly. Um there was no onerous regulations placed on like Quicken loans um, that I can tell, other than they have to, you know, keep people distant and inside of uh, inside of office buildings. Um, so, but then you start looking at these different types of small businesses that then don't have as big of a megaphone in Lansing, and they seem to be the ones who who got you know kind of uh, shortchanged. Um, the the restaurants have you know and 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 various liquor lobbies. They've got a pretty good lobby in Lansing, um, and they got what they wanted early on, and then they got kind of pulled back and told, you know, uh, well, the governor came and, and made it look like she was um, closing all service, in indoor service in bars. Um, but there was a big, huge loophole in this thing that said um, if you if you you can if you're a bar and you um, you have to close your indoor service if you make more than seventy percent of your gross receipts on um, alcohol sales. Well, a lot of bars already sell a lot of food and they have a good chunk of their of the revenue that already comes from food. Uh, so a lot of bars didn't close. Um, and, and if they didn't, um, I know of some watering holes in different parts of the state that uh, uh, one in particular in, in, in Oscoda, uh, those guys were just selling bags of chips a year ago, and now they have a full kitchen um, in order to basically circumvent, on, circumvent <laughs> and, and, yeah. and, and go through the loophole. But again, what's the science between a, a, a bar 
operating at 69% of their sales alcohol um, and a bar operating at 71% of their sales alcohol. Well, nothing. But that whole uh, that whole um, uh, that that whole executive order was aimed at shutting down harbors and the wayside in in Mount Pleasant and um, Club uh, Necto in um, is that Ann Arbor? They should have shut down um, the wayside a long time ago in Mount Pleasant. That place has been responsible for diseases long before COVID nineteen was concocted. <laughs> a lot worse than that. As a former CMU alum, I can next test. Yeah, Ben. Ben's like I've burned through all the diseases at the wayside. He's immune to everything now. Well, ben I also Kelly's. Kelly's. and yes, yeah, um, yeah. I I I plead guilty for going to the wayside freshman sophomore year. Where else are you going to go? College. It's Mount Pleasant. It's like O'Kelly's or the wayside. It's you know, it's not a hopping bar scene. There. Well, I'm more of a bird guy, but um, uh, but anyways, uh, and Marty's uh, downtown. Uh, but I like I like uh, hole in the wall bars. At, at any rate, um. So, but but just for this example, actually, um, yeah, that that whole executive order went after the waysides and O'Kellys of the world, but it it harmed the watering holes, it harmed the Marty's uh, bar in Mount Pleasant, uh, and and the Bird and the Blackstone, and and in doing so, they had to adapt and sell more food, basically to get you know get around the get around the order and. I, I mean, I don't see any difference between a restaurant that has a bar and a bar that ha- that serves food. Um, Not on a scientific basis. I think what their point is they have to draw the line somewhere. You have to create the guidelines somewhere somehow. But again, if your entire shield that you're, you're crafting in front of you to deflect all the slings and arrows is the science, the science, the science, your science better be able to hold up against some serious scrutiny and it hasn't. That's the bottom line. And again, I have been honestly kind of a moderate on Gretchen Whitmer. I haven't been a, a harsh critic. I haven't been a, a staunch supporter. But again, the lack of communication and the lack of, of clarity on how these things are structured have been the biggest failing, in my estimation. It seems to be your conclusion, too. I know you're more of a neutral, ask questions, hey, why is this a certain way? So maybe I can put the exclamation on your point for you. But at the end of the day, your defense is the science. The science is not right. And if it is right, you better explain to me how, because it doesn't make sense on paper. It doesn't make sense. It, this disease does not uh, discriminate in these situations. And they seem to think that it does. I, I don't know how else to, to craft a response to what they've done. Just in general with Gretchen Whitmer, the thing that's been discussed most, mostly in your article from a few days ago, September 20th, is this 1945 emergency powers law that she has invoked repeatedly. The GOP is up in arms and pushing back pretty hard against that now. Just in general, do you think she has abused those powers in these past few months? I'm not going to draw a conclusion on that. Uh, This was a law that was developed post-World War II to give the governor broad, um, extraordinary powers during times of emergency. whether we're still in an emergency, I think, is debatable um, based on this science. I mean, uh, and and but but the way that that this law has been invoked over and over and over, um, especially after the circumstances that originally she was using another law, the 1976 uh, emergency powers law that um, or emergency management law, they called it. Um, that uh, that that a Republican legislature and a Republican governor, Bill Milliken, 
uh, past. Um, they this repeated use of it without basically having to go to the legislature and ask for permission or work with them um, to uh, dictate law. Um, I think that that's that's still up for debate um, for sure. Um, I I wrote about this in context that there is a there is an initiative petition uh, that's that they've gathered five hundred thousand signatures. It's called Unlock Michigan. It's mostly run run by Republican political operatives um, who who have you know are in the business of 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 trying to knock off Gretchen Whitmer uh, or at least knock her down a, a peg before her reelection in twenty twenty two. They have. Uh, gather the signatures to try to repeal this thing. And the way our law or our constitution works is if you get a, a, a initiated, initiated law um, and you have the, the required number of signatures, which is a minimum of 347,000, you can put this before the legislature to adopt this, this new law. And this, this bill would essentially just repeal the 1945 law um, and strip the governor of these powers in the middle of the, of the pandemic. Um, I am not taking a position on that, but I am kind of laid out like, you know, the, the reality here is um, politically, can she really continue on um, just holding, you know, trying to hold on to this power um, without trying to negotiate something with the legislature. Now, there are good arguments that the legislature is full of bad actors or people who are on their way at the door, um, uh, lame ducks, and not necessarily um, uh, looking out for long-term best interests of the people of Michigan. Um, and that the governor uh, is making an argument that she is. Um, and so, I, I see both sides of this argument, um, but at the end of the day, um, was the intent of the 1945 law to allow indefinite um, gubernatorial rule uh, where she can, you know, the governor can just amend laws um, uh, at, at the stroke of a pen and, and, and hold businesses, um, some of them hostage um, for, for, you know, a year or because if it's gone on for six months, it could go on for a year, right? Yeah, it could. I mean, I'll say this in general, and this goes for the presidential level, the state level, local level, however you cut it. I am in favor of unilateral executive power in emergencies. I think there's times where it's necessary, where you, you can't have red tape or hold the vote as pe- people are dying left and right from a virus or if there's nuclear fallout, God forbid, God knows what. I'm in favor of it in principle. But this in perpetuity thing, again, I think even Gretchen Whitmer understands it, time's about up for this. I mean, you said months. We don't know how many months. I tend to agree with you. Three or four sounds more right if I tell you, yeah, you know, it'll be, it'll be some months before I do something. I'm probably not talking about 10 or 11. I mean, so it's a, so since I wrote this, there's been a couple of developments. Let's so talk about it. Yesterday, I was in Ann Arbor, um, caught up with the Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson. And procedurally, um, these signatures get turned in. And then they have to go through a, a a procedure where the State Bureau of Elections um, pulls a sample of 500 signatures and goes through and checks and makes sure that they're a valid signature of that voter based on what that signature is on file in the voter rolls, just like they do when they give you a ballot or give you an absentee ballot. Um, and so that that is a you know a, a little bit of a time consuming process. Um, there is, uh, the, her own elections director is on record 
saying basically in summer months of a, an election year, they could do that in about 60 days. Yesterday, she said to me, well, on average, overall, it takes 105 days. Um, and there happens to be 100 days left in this miserable year that we're living through. And, Worst ever. And so, um, so I, 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 I tweeted this because I thought, well, this is kind of, this is kind of newsworthy um, because she was basically just kind of said, you can't, I, can, I can basically run this thing out um, so that – and here's where the politics gets, gets interesting. There is a fight right now uh, in the election for control of the Michigan House of Representatives. The the uh, Democrats need to win four seats to take majority um, or four seats to tie it and five seats to take majority. Um, and so if they are um, successful in doing that and the secretary of state can find basically does take her 105 days to to certify the petition, they can run the clock out into the first couple of days of 2021. And the Democrats will be in power in the House and they will block this from from passing without uh, and then it will have to go to the ballot in 2022. Stakes it, are high. The stakes are very high. Very high. And so the governor has made you know, clearly politically also in the last couple of weeks has put a lot of shift of her focus on winning these House races uh, because this is basically the firewall to stop the repeal of, of, of the 1945 law. And also, frankly, it's the firewall of to actually give the governor some some you know leg up politically uh, in her second two years in, in office uh, in the second half of her of her of her term uh, because frankly next year third third year that that needs that needs to be a year where she gets something significantly done I mean this year you know whatever it, she got her uh, road bonding plan passed. Uh, with her own people and, and bypassing the legislature and with the state transportation commission. She did that in February and then everything has been basically COVID-19 ever since. She's got a couple of programs along the way, but, but basically her agenda uh, got derailed by, you know, by, by both the uh, pandemic and the economic upheaval. And she gets a pass for that, not to interrupt, but because I had a couple of people, they heard you were coming on and they wanted you and I, to crack on her for not fixing the damn roads. I had that message from three or four different people. And I said, I'm not going to criticize her for not fixing the roads. First of all, I don't think they would have fixed the roads anyway. I think that's something that uh, has been talked about for years and years and years. But I, I think the whole situation changes when you're, nobody saw this coming. It's going to swamp your funds. I mean, you want to talk about, I'll just give you one example. A nursing home administrator, family business, nursing home, obviously uh, industry affected greatly by this. State comes out with mandated testing weekly for all employees. These testing kits are, I believe, $140, $135 a piece. We have 175 or so employees. Do the math. We did it over like the course of, I think it was like eight months or 10 months. We did some projection that we sent to them. It's like a million dollars. Maybe it was a year, but it was literally a seven-figure cost. And in this mandate, there was no clarification on are we paying for this? Is, are you guys paying for it? Like there, there's nothing. It was just totally silent that you, you know, you will test them. Are these tests even available for all these nursing homes that are now going to buy mandate need them? You know, the point is they've blown out the budget. And as it turns out, they have been reimbursing us for those tests. These bills are insane. It's like, you know, every week it's, it's you know, $30,000 or whatever it is. And it's, it's just every week running again, that's all on, on the public dime. So 
I, I think it's safe to say she probably gets a pass for neglecting some of the things she campaigned on. Is that, is that crazy? Of yeah, me to say? I mean, she is going about fixing the damn roads without the legislature. I, I hold the legislature as an institution uh, accountable and, and somewhat in contempt um, of, of producing uh, America's worst roads. Um, and and Literally both right. both the legislature and term limits. I and I've written this before. I mean, the, the, we have uh, really really terribly underfunded our roads, and uh, we have created policies that continue to allow uh, more and more uh, roads to go to pot. Um, I mean, last year I wrote about how they were. They, I was out in twenty six mile in Macomb Township one day. Uh, visiting a friend and pulled out of their subdivision kind of a different way and drove a different road. And, and they were widening this road um, up by, um, I can't remember the intersection, North, North, North Avenue. Yeah. North Avenue and 26 mile. They were widening it to five lanes for like a mile and a half stretch. And I thought to myself, first of all, where the hell did they get the money for that? Um, second of all, why are they widening it? And then driving down the road a little further, they're building high-density condos on 26-mile road out in the middle of a farm field. And I thought, this is what is wrong with what's going on. Because at the time, I had just, I had just uh, come across a little stat that was alarming. Macomb County at the time, and this hasn't changed much, had 800 lane miles of road in poor condition. And I live in St. Clair Shores, uh, so I know where these roads are. Uh, they're in Warren. They're in Sterling Heights. They're in Clinton Township. They're in um, uh, Frazier. Uh, they're all over basically everything south of 20 Mile um, in, in Macomb uh, County. Uh, they're the older suburbs. Um, and, and it just kind of had an epiphany one day. Okay, we have actually built a state we can no longer afford to maintain. Um, we've built infrastructure. We just simply don't have enough money or that we're not willing to tax ourselves to, to pay for. Um, and I wrote that in, in a way that we, we've created, you know, more and more sprawl. And as we create that more sprawl, then we just, we just let, you know, um, uh, we have to then go back after the fact and widen the road to account, to accommodate all the additional traffic. But then we don't even have money to to take care of the roads we already have, um, and so. But this is a result of public policy that starts with the legislature, um, and and then it goes down to like charter township and town. And I don't get me started about them, but um, but I, I I don't fault the governor. I, mean, I think she had to do what she had to do with that road bond plan. Uh, it's not going to fix local roads, but it's going to fix it's going to fix a whole lot of highways in Michigan. And make them a lot better and safer, and 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 you know, and 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 also the little side effect of it, Justin, is we're going to get a um a stimulus out of this whole thing that we didn't even didn't even think we needed in February, you know, when the economy was rolling, you know, pretty pretty nicely. But we're getting a stimulus this summer and this this season, and then next year there's going to be a stimulus. So if we are in a long term recession. Uh, this actually will turn out to be a job creator at a time when, when we actually really need it. I mean, to, to put a wrap on the whole Gretchen Whitmer piece, I'll just say that for whatever criticisms, you know, we've discussed questions you've asked because you're the consummate journalist. You're just you just ask questions and present both sides. Maybe not so much for me. 
But for all that we can say negatively, I'll repeat, one of the hardest jobs in the history of American politics was being a governor or, in my opinion, sorry, Democrat friends, the president during this time. Terrible situation, something we've never bargained for, something totally novel unless you want to go back 100 plus years to the Spanish flu. So I will say for whatever we've said, this was tough. Mistakes were going to be made. I think it's time to start correcting some of those things. And that's kind of where I stand on it. It's time to move forward. I think people are ready for it. I think people are just done. I think people are just fed up with it. But I appreciate your reporting on it. I, were, I think, you know, you've been, you've been great. I think you've been very fair. And that's sort of your MO. I, I got to admit, Chad, I, I tried to pin you a couple of times. I tried to get you to talk about the, the protest difference. I tried to get you to talk about the executive order and potential abuses of that, the, you know, those powers and all that. But you're kind of you're playing it straight. I mean, that's what you do. So I commend you for that, I, I guess. But I, it would be great if you came in here with just a torch once in a while. But you're, you, you don't rattle, my man. You, just, you don't rattle. I don't bite every apple. I, you don't bite at any apples. I, I, I think you're fasting for Ramadan or something over there. I threw, I threw you some bait. You wouldn't take it. You're, you're smarter than me. I can't. I, I got to get someone dumber than me across the, the desk next time. But um, I want to talk about this. We'll transition off Gretchen Whitmer, for the love of God, and COVID-19. Talk about anything else, as my grandma would say. Talk about anything but this. The District Detroit. I don't want to get too deep into this. You haven't covered it in a while. And frankly, there's not that much new, which might be kind of the point that there isn't much new with the District of Detroit. I want to play as, as sort of the, the launching point for this discussion, a clip from Chris Illich in 2014, where he is before the media talking about the District of Detroit and how excited he is to, to build it and make it this wonderful thing. We'll play the clip and we'll, we'll go from there. It's about creating something awesome for our community, something that people enjoy and feel proud of. And like I said earlier, let's go do this together. And that applies to all of you in this room. While our organization is stepping forward to master develop the district, opportunities abound to get involved in this district. There are over 100 parcels of land that will be making part of this district. And we're looking for people just like you to come forward as developers, investors, or to champion it to your friends you may have that are in the real estate business. And there are many, many parcels of land within this district that we don't own. So it's our hope that folks like you become interested in purchasing and developing these parcels into something uh, special uh, within the district environment. Here's what I'm going to give you. And you hold up these beautiful artist renderings and people are playing hopscotch on the streets of Detroit and people are, are, are drinking, you know, mochaccinos. And it, it's just the most wonderful thing in Detroit. It looks like something out of San Francisco before, you know, all the bum shit on the ground. And then you don't deliver. You deliver Baghdad, which we saw on the right. You cover the district of Detroit at great length. I want to talk about Chris Illich. I, I know you don't know, but if you had to guess your sense, did Chris Illich know all along when he's standing up there in 2014 and the subsequent years that he was pitching this, that it was never really going to come to fruition? Do you think this was an example of a, a guy twisting his mustache and saying, I can't believe I'm getting away with this? Or do you think the best laid plans were there? He really intended to deliver this and just hasn't for whatever reason. I think it's the latter. I, I, I think they they had these grand plans. Everybody has grand plans. I mean, he's not the first person in Detroit to come along and, and lay one out. 
that hasn't materialized. I mean, Gilbert was going to build a 913 foot uh, skyscraper by now, and and they are. It's going to be like a 676 foot or so uh, no, skyscraper. Cheap, yeah, doing cheap. Well, he he scaled back as someone someone came in and said, "Hey, this isn't gonna, economics aren't going to work here," and that's something has happened at, at, at same thing at, at uh, Little Caesars Arena in District Detroit. Someone came in and 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 we don't know a lot about the village's finances. Yes, they're billionaires, but they also but they are billionaires with they're saddled with a lot of of debt and and seemingly with assets uh, that don't necessarily always pump out a lot of cash, except for the pizza business. I think that I think that that seems to always do pretty well. Um, but but when you look at like their you know their sports teams and 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 their other enterprises. Um, it, it, you know, we just don't have a real sense of just how uh, liquid they are, and and they may not be as good as it looks. And then there's there's family dynamics there we don't really have a whole clue about since Mike died. Um, and so um, something happened since Mike died. I think I think that's kind of we can kind of figure that out. Um, but but you know, um, the the Illiches, you know, are, we're probably looking as 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 Chris was kind of saying in that video. If you want to come and help and be part of this, you know, please raise your hand. Well, nobody raised their hand. Um, I mean, with the exception of Wayne State, and they built them that that Mike Illich uh, um, uh, Business School. Um, you know, the rest of it has just been their their stuff, and so nobody else jumped into into their stuff for whatever reason. They have they have a little bit of a reputation not being necessarily the greatest developer to work with um and that that reputation kind of gets around and then other developers are like yeah i'm not really interested in doing that um and then yeah then there's the there's just the layout of of the district detroit that people still you know kind of are like okay is this about parking lots and and 20 dollar uh, right. parking fees or is this or is there a real infill vision here and i think that's kind of still up for debate well at the end of the day you pitched this image as a condition and as an inducement for that money and not small potatoes money big money you talked about dan gilbert he was going to build a 900 foot skyscraper and he built a 700 foot skyscraper mm -hmm. i wouldn't take issue if the district detroit fell short of the aspirations that they put forth i wouldn't take issue if they simply fell short my issue is they didn't fall short. They just didn't do. They yeah. did nothing. The arena is not a district. It's so funny. They have like an app that you can go on. It's, it's still called the District Detroit. What's a district about it? It's just an arena. It's just an arena. And, you, you know, you can, you can blame, you know, people not buying their plots of land. I happen to know two business owners. I'm not going to name them on the air. Maybe we can talk after. Who tried to do business with them. They have made it impossible to work with. They want an insane amount of money for a small plot of land. The perception from those two individuals, obviously anecdotal, but that the perception is that they don't want to do business. They don't want to have these people coming in for whatever he said in 2014. They want to control it. They want to squat on it and just have it be parking so they can control all the assets. They don't want to put the money into development, which is fine. That's their right. Welcome to America. But they are consciously blocking people who might be interested. Obviously, everyone has a price, but they're making it untenable. No one's going to open a little cafe 
if they're charging seven times the rent that they would be charging otherwise if they weren't trying to otherwise control the land. So I get what you're saying of it takes two to play ball. They need some other people to come in and be down there. I'm telling you, I know two cases specifically that tried. They're impossible to work with. And that seems to be, I've heard stories from other people that seem to be along those lines. I think that they took that money. I, I don't know what was in their head, but they the bottom line is they took that money and they are not meeting their end of the bargain. I think they took it and basically have run with it and have not honored their end of the bargain. Nothing really much has happened there. I had Tony Paul in from the Detroit News, friend of mine, really good reporter, might be the second or third best reporter behind you in the state, Chad. Very good guy. Good Tony's report. really good. He's He is, he is uh, an ace on the staff. We have a couple aces in the state of Michigan. Tony's wonderful. And he said the rumblings, and this is him, not me, but and he said it on the show, the rumblings around his sources that basically it's just dead. I mean, have you heard anything? Are they just kind of like letting it die? Is this the end game, the Baghdad Detroit? Well, it, it is certainly everything is on hold right now uh, on several fronts, and and this is this is clearly one of them. Um, when you don't have your major sports teams competing in front of crowds, you're not going to induce like more investment into. Other types of of, of spinoff developments like offices. I mean, we don't have offices filled. We had three um, years before COVID, though, Chad. And oh nothing, no, I, they, I they don't didn't break not, out one shovel. I'm not doubting that. And and that and 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 just think about it in context. Those three years before COVID were the best boom years uh, Michigan's had in 20 years. Um, yep. And and so if you weren't able to sell it then. And they they had sold you know they sold the offices to Google and and then they did a few um, you know of their in other you know infills around around the stadium, but otherwise there's still a lot of stuff sitting there vacant. And if you weren't able to figure it out the economics then, um, then you know it's questionable <laughs> when if it's ever going to be um, you know infilled. I mean there was always the idea of having that hotel right next to it along yeah. Henry Street and and the interstate. Um, that was supposed to be like a luxury hotel for, uh, for the players and such to to stay at, kind of basically compete with, uh, like Townsend and Birmingham, um, so that they're not driving out to the suburbs and they're just walking across the the, the plaza. Um, that never materialized. I mean, so there's a whole lot of things that didn't materialize. Um, and I I think it's going to be years before we see some new progress based on just where we are economically. And also politically, um, I don't think it's any secret that that Chris Sillage has a really close ally in Mayor Mike Duggan. Uh, and if Duggan Duggan has been asked about this, uh, after, especially after um, my colleagues uh, Kirk Pinnell and and Bill Shea did the big expose last March on on the district of Detroit, Duggan got asked about it and he kind of downplayed it about you know the, the, that and downplayed the DDAs. Role and where the DDA ought to step in and you know try to basically get clawbacks and um, you know so if Duggan doesn't get too you know hot about it, I, it's probably nobody else is really going to get too hot about it either. It doesn't look like that's and that's kind of was my point is it seems like I'm screaming into the wind. It feels like most people are just resigned to it. I still want to see my little cafe where people are playing, you know, chess and, and like all the things, walking their dogs. I, I, you know, I still have that kind of dream for Detroit. And maybe I, what an idiot I am, I guess. I mean, that's kind of like, you took the money. You, you took the money. 
Where's my cafe? Where's my movie? Yeah, theater? and then we should also distinguish the difference between the District Detroit development and say the incentives for um the uh uh Gilbert, you know, skyscraper at at the Hudson site is Gilbert is getting basically a refund or or a write-off on taxes um gener- that he would pay for uh materials for construction costs. And on sales tax or use tax. And then he's going to be able to capture the income tax of residents and workers in that tower. Whereas the District Detroit deal was uh, the city of Detroit is going to take out $300 million of debt, uh, or at least the, the, the DDA is going to take out this debt and, and make these and, and issue these bonds in order to subsidize your $900 million stadium. Um, and that's, that's just a completely different type of direct aid compared to um, a, the Gilbert situation or even um, FCA's new auto plant or even Ford in Corktown, uh, those incentive plans are all kind of focused around um, basically just basic tax breaks uh, for periods of time. The other, the other thing long-term I think about a lot is, and I'm thinking about it more lately, uh, is in Detroit, um, we've we've given away a lot of the farm in order to spur these developments. Um, but eventually you gotta, you gotta have to feed the cows. I mean, when I mean that it is that you could have bills that are going to come due. And when you've eroded your tax base like this, like they've done with the DDA district in downtown uh, to subsidize the stadium, like they've done 30 year, um, uh, complete property tax abatement um, renaissance zone for the, for the train station. Now let's hope the train station gets renovated. Um, that, that'll be a transformational project. If it, if it comes to fruition uh, transformational for that, for, for Corktown and Southwest Detroit in general. Um, but, and then, you know, just, we're just opening a new auto plant. That's our cover story this week. And cranes is that new auto plant on Mac Avenue. Again, they also got uh, 20, 30 years of, of various tax property tax breaks and that's just going to be years and years and years not having those that that revenue um and the city's already facing some some serious um the the biggest challenge since bankruptcy with covid-19 the the city is projecting they're going to lose 160 million dollars in income tax over the next year from the num- all the workers who aren't working downtown and paying income tax or they're Hold up in their suburban house or basement. That's only half of what Chris Illich stole. So it's not that much. Why don't they call Chris for the money? I just, where's my cafe? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I just want my little cafe. Is that too much to ask? Can we build one cafe? Well, I think there are building. They're gonna. There is some kind of plan for a new coffee shop out on Woodward. Oh, at, I'm good. Fillmore, right? right? The three hundred million dollar cafe. No, I don't think it's gonna be that. That'll but. be a hell of a cafe. What kind of beans are they serving up there? I just think you, you owe me something, Chad. Not you, but I mean, if you're Chris, well, remember, remember the Apple Store was supposed to happen. Oh, there was supposed I, to be an I Apple Store there. I don't there. remember that. That but. you know that parking lot in front of Comerica. Yeah, they were gonna turn that into a little strip mall of some sort with like a, like like an Apple Store and. That was like a plan that was floated like, I don't know, three years ago. It was in Cranes. I, I've, I've kind of forgotten about it, but don't, know, don't tell now. But yeah, some of that stuff is not happening. Um, and um, But again, I I think it's going to come down to political will. And if Detroiters rise up and say, tell tell Duggan that he needs to claw back money, um, then maybe Duggan will listen. Well, the problem is there, it was a nine, non-binding agreement, so I don't know what Duggan can do. That money went out the door. It's like, 
good. I just good luck with that. It was it was a, a disaster from the beginning. You had a no strings attached deal that was ba- that was made on the basis of a couple pretty pictures, a couple pretty pictures that they have made no effort to strive to. I've said again and again and again, and we said it ten minutes ago. Fall short, fall short. That's fine, but break ground on something. Give me something, even if it is a three hundred million dollar cafe. I mean, give me something. And they failed, and that's where I stand on it. I, I might be the only one still mad. You said no one seems to give a shit anymore. I give a shit. I'll go to the grave giving a shit because I wanted my cafe and my dog park, and I think you owe them that. You owe the city that when you take that money. But that's where I stand. I want you to write a scathing report on Chris Illich in the District of Detroit in your next column. I, I really appreciate that as a personal favor, Chad. Uh, like I said, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't buy on on the apples you throw here. Yeah, you've thrown away a lot, and these are mostly rotten apples. So probably a good call. There's worms in them and all. So we'll move on. You know, I know you don't live close, so let's rip through the speed round. Something we do here, a little bit light. There's no time limit per se, but you know, three, five sentences each. The first one's perfect because we just talked about him. Chris Illich, three to five sentences. What do you think of Chris Illich? Cautious. Um, That's it? Okay. Reserved. Uh, cautious and reserved. Those are, those are the words that come to mind. That works. That works. Our old friend in Michigan, Rick Snyder, recently in the news for endorsing Joe Biden. What do you think of Rick Snyder? I think he is uh, looking to continue to reaffirm what his legacy is. Um, and I also think he's a little bored lately. A little bored. I would argue he's trying to change his legacy more than reaffirm it. I, I think it's an appeal to half the state that hated him, the whole Joe Biden thing. That's my perception. But this is your round, not mine. Who wins in November, Trump versus Biden? Not who you want, who actually wins? I, I'm not going to buy on that. I got out of the predictions. That's not even an apple. I'm not, I, I got out of the predictions business in 2016. You have no, you have no opinion whatsoever? <laughs> you don't have to say who you're voting for. Mike, Chad, you are right down the middle. You'd be a great witness in a court case. Okay, we'll move on. I think Trump wins, but like two days ago, I thought it was Biden. Two days from now, I'll probably be back on Biden. So it's like I'm all over the place. So don't take anything I say. Uh, okay, well, maybe you can give me an opinion on this since this can't really offend anybody. Best restaurant in Detroit, downtown Detroit. Like you're in the city. Where are you going? Best spot? Uh, roast. Roast. Great spot. Good choice. I'm glad I actually knew it because I don't know half the restaurants in Detroit. Roast is a good choice. We'll go with that. Newspapers going behind paywalls. Obviously, Cranes has been behind a paywall forever, so far as I know. Detroit News, Detroit Free Press recently made the plunge. What do you think of newspapers going behind paywalls in Detroit? Uh, it's about time. About um, time. You agree. Good call. And uh, it, and it's necessary for the survival. Um, it's one of the reasons I left Detroit News in, in 2016, because I, they, do, they had not gotten on this bandwagon. Um, they and the free press and the whole Gannett organization. Um, but I think they finally have figured out that this is it. They've got to, they got to make this work or, or one of them is going under. I think it's the best buy in town right now. I mean, even if you go for that like three month thing for a dollar, they're doing at the free press. So I could spend six bucks and get the both of them for several months. So Just quick advertising. Uh, if, if anybody would like a $79 deal for one year of cranes, um, direct message me on Twitter. I'll send you a link. You're telling me this now? I did like a $169 thing four hours ago. <laughs> All right. Well, someone else can have my spot. Cranes is great though. I, I Honestly, I did subscribe today 
I've always read it, but it was just, we got it to the office. So I would always just take the physical copy. So I've always read it, but I never had the digital, but I was doing show prep, you know, the last 24 hours for this show and sure. had the physical copy, but I needed to dive into your archives a little bit for today. So I actually did subscribe and gave you apparently an extra hundred hours. So I hope that goes to, I don't know. We're happy, we're happy to help you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe we can get, get, let's give it to Chris Silich. It'll be money well spent. All right. Last, we'll finish here. I have my vote for your answer, but I'll I'll shut up. Weirdest story you have ever covered in your career? I think you know the answer to that. I, that, I that do. Would be the uh, the scandal of, of Todd Corser, the former state representative who sent out uh, an anonymous email uh, smearing himself, saying he was having <laughs> um, having a uh, homosexual affair uh, in order to cover up a heterosexual affair he was having with state representative. Cindy Gamrat. Um, and uh, that's about all I can say about it on the advice of my lawyers because Todd has had to, has sued me a couple of times. He sued you a couple of times. What Unsuccessfully. Is, I Well, that, thank you for clarifying. Some of those tapes you had, like you had recordings of your interview with him. I don't know. I can't remember if you like tweeted them out or the, I, I don't remember how you blasted them out. But those are some of the funniest things where he's just going off on you and you're just like, Oh, Todd, I don't you know. I don't oh, that was what I called him one time. You a called little, him? That's what it was. A little journalist um, trick we sometimes do. Uh, he Todd wouldn't pick up with my phone, so I called him on my wife's phone, and he picked up because um, he didn't recognize the number. Uh, it wasn't as, as saved in his, in his stuff, and so he picked up and answered some questions. I've I've used that trick a few times. Uh, okay, I'll be on the lookout in case you're ever investigating me for anything. But I mean, you basically hit it. But I, I think it's hilarious that somebody was having an affair in Lansing with a colleague, extramarital affair, knew or suspected that it was going to get out and to sort of muddy up the waters, I guess, was the strategy, created a fake affair where I think it was pretty crude too, wasn't it? Like, he said he was having uh, homosexual relations like in an alley or something. Behind it? a popular Lansing nightclub. Yeah. Which is, yes. Oh, yeah. So everyone would know. So to like to throw people off the scent, it's basically saying like if there was some rumor that you stole money from like the church collection bin, you're going like, to throw people off on the credibility of that like true accusation. You're going to say that you were like in the Taliban or something. Like, it's just like he, he created a rumor about himself. It's one of my favorite stories ever. We did like an hour in studio just on that. You and I, we were here with um, Steve Neveling from Motor City Muckraker. We talked about a lot of things, but we spent about an hour on Todd Corser. So that's back in 2017 if you want that gem. So chat live and good. You know where I stand. I, I like most of the people that come in here, but. You know I love you. I think you're the best journalist in the state. I love what you do, even if it drives me nuts that I can't get anything really strong on some of these things from you. But I think you're a throwback guy. There's very few guys that are guys or gals that are fitting in that mold. I think people are biased one way or another. They can't help themselves. Nolan Finley can't find anything nice to say about Gretchen Whitmer ever. And then virtually all the rest of the media is fawning. And I, I think you, you call balls and strikes, and I appreciate what you do. You're old school, and I think we need more of you, not less, for sure. Hey, thanks for having me on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Happy to have you. And, gosh, please come back at some point. I hope I didn't scare you off. I promise I won't throw any more rotten apples at you. No, no, I can't keep that promise. I can promise you won't bite, though. How about that? Chad, live and good. The best journalist in the state, in studio. Happy to have him. Ben Augusta. I'm exhausted, but Chad wouldn't give me anything. I, can we go like have a cigarette or something? I'm not a smoker, but can we go smoke or something after this? I need to relax. 
I might have a cigar on the car. We he, could. Uh, he wore my ass out. I had nothing. So I love you guys for for watching. Uh, we've been all over the map with our guests. We've ranged from anywhere between. 15, 16,000 uh, hits to over 50,000 on the John Warren episode. So we appreciate all you guys tuning in. This has been the Spiro Avenue Show. Chad Livengood from Crane's Detroit Business. Top journalist in the state. I don't care what you say. It's true. Ben Augusta on the board. Great job by you, Ben, as always. Spiro Avenue out. We will see you later this week. We have another fun one coming up. Stay tuned. Thank you.